Hey there, it's Riley Blanks-Reed, and you're listening to Self-Regard. This show elevates the depths of compassionate introspection through topics on mental health, creativity, higher consciousness, and identity. In this new series of interviews, I'm drawing back the curtain on our archives. You'll hear unique perspectives from creative female revolutionary minds on artful living, relationships, cultural identity, career growth, and fulfilling a vision despite trauma and hardship. In this show, we prioritize well-being and a mindful state of harmony through a very special way of living I like to call self-regard. I believe that the shoes you wear, the shoes you stand in, should embody your values, not just in personal style, but in life itself. Frida Salvador is the fit for me. They embody my values of quality, intentionality, and sustainability. Every pair I own has seamlessly integrated into my wardrobe, embodying the perfect blend of comfort, edge, and laid-back sophistication. Handcrafted in family factories in Spain and El Salvador, Frida's are reimagined classics, striking the perfect balance between design and function, lovingly made in small batches to live in your closet forever. To purchase your first pair of Frida's, use code RILEY15, that's R-I-L-E-Y-1-5, for 15% off on full-priced styles. Welcome back to the Archives series. In this episode, Tori Yates Orr, Jane Hervey, and Shantavia Ward explore the importance of challenging prototypical systems, redefining beauty, reframing culture, celebrating history, and advocating for personhood despite life's hurdles. Let's get into it. First up, Tori Yates Orr is an Emmy-nominated historian and storyteller who believes that understanding history is essential to creating a better future. In her work, Tori aims to challenge the way we think about the past and its impact on our present by analyzing history and breaking it down into objective truths that are entertaining, engaging, and accessible to any listener. My family is everything to me. My family is a big reason why I I love history and why I love what I do. Can you describe more of how they informed what you do? Um, Well, I mean, I think growing up and, you know, a predominantly white uh, community, um, my mom always insisted on us knowing our history. Um, And so from a very young age, my mom was teaching us about our ancestors, like knowing about our ancestors was really key to us. So, you know, we were eating foods that our ancestors ate. Um, we were, you know, singing songs that they sang. So there's a very deep ancestral connection there. And even moving forward, that's kind of always been my touchstone. That's what I go back to. Um, if when I pray, I you know, always want to pray to the people who have passed on. That's always kind of been a thing for me. Um, I haven't really shared that with anybody. So you already got that out of me, Riley. Um, So yeah, so it's just been a a big part of who we are. And I come from a long line of really strong women. So that's kind of the Yates trait. 
as well. Hey. Hey. So what kind of food do you eat? So like, for instance, so like a weird story, um, my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother had land on the Choctaw Reservation in Oklahoma. So that's where my mom spent her summers. Um, And so they made like flatbreads and they made traditional Choctaw food that my mom just grew up eating during the summer. Um, We're not Choctaw, but (laughs) those are the the foods that we ate from there. Um, And then, you know, I've got family from Kansas to Oklahoma to Detroit. Um, We're kind of all over the place um, in, in America. So we've always been uh, cognizant of that in terms of our food. Um, and now both my brothers are in Texas. So now we've got the Texan influence in the Yates <laughs> name as well. That's cool. I like how you pick up, you know, you don't necessarily assimilate, but you kind of acquire like the culture that you live in. Yeah. yeah. It's weird how that happens. It's, you know, you don't lose yourself. You just kind of pick up another aspect. I, I always remember my AP US history had one paragraph on slaves and that was it. Um, so my mission is to kind of get people engaged in history that they might not know about, um, and understand how it relates to the present. Cause I think that's something that a lot of people are missing is we think of history. We think, oh, that was in the past or the oh, civil war that was in the past, but we're seeing right now how it's affecting the present. So that's my mission is to get people engaged and interested in something that they probably thought was boring or dry um, and to understand how it's affecting the now and to understand it from a point of view of someone who is a, a black woman. Um, Cause I don't think we don't get to tell our stories. Stories are told. There's always that old adage stories are told by the history is written by the winners. Um, and typically black women, people of color have with colonialism have not been the winners. Mm-hmm. So I think it's time to get another point of view. And so, that's kind of my mission is to provide that in any way I can and to get people engaged in the subject that I love so dearly. What would you say is your vision for that mission? Um, my that vision dream? Is, uh, like, what's your dream? What's, what's your dream? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to have a program, um, whether it's online digitally or um, TV is what I know. Um, but that breaks down history in a way that is accessible for everyone. A lot of times it's, it's too academic. I don't need, people are not interested in academic journals like I am. Um, and I understand that. I think more public historians need to understand that. Um, so whether it's digitally or on TV or, um, in a book, I would be a horrible writer, but I would help have someone help me. I think it's important to get across, especially to this younger generation that's coming up and is killing it, um, understanding their history, but understanding it in a way where they can convey to other people, this is what this means. This is why this is important now. That's really key to me. Yeah. And I love that you call that engagement. I feel like a lot of people use the word awareness. And I think the issue with just being aware is that you don't necessarily do anything with it yeah Um, and so by yeah so by actively engaging you know you take that awareness further you pass it on you know and so then it becomes a sound wave and now you're influencing more than just one person you speak on really significant issues and oh gosh I'm not even going to go down the rabbit hole of what it means to be a woman in media because I think we all have let's um, talk about it 
Yeah. Well, I'll let you talk about it, but I'm, I'm just curious. I don't know if you necessarily want to go through experiences you've had, but what does it mean for What has it meant for you? Um, how have, how are you seen? How have you been treated and how do you deal with that? Um, I think a lot of times if you're a woman who is comfortable in her beauty, I think people can be dismissive if you want to speak on, on deeper things or you want to speak on, you know, academic things. I think there's a tendency to say, you know, oh, well, you know, you're not going to know about this or just kind of sit and be pretty. And as a woman who so many of us are, are, are get, being comfortable in their beauty and unapologetic, that can be misconstrued in media. I think that's kind of um, unheard of right now of being able to do that and also be like, hey, I want to talk about redlining or I want to talk about Henry VIII. I always kind of, I kind of wavered when I was first starting to do history stuff of, should I kind of play myself down or, um, you know, not wear much makeup or don't wear anything that shows off my body? Because I've had issues with that before where people were like, hey, you need to kind of dumb, dumb your light, dim your light. Um, mm. And they told me that. They're like, you need to start looking more regular. Um, and I decided I'm not, literally, they said that. What is, what is regular? Okay. I don't understand. I was just, I was very confused. It was a company I worked for and they're like, you just don't look accessible. And I was, I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, this is me. Um, and I think that's every woman's version of who they are, their full self is going to be different. Um, my version is going to be completely different than your version, but it's going to be completely different from somebody else. And I think when someone tells me you need to dim your light, that can mean different things. But for me, it meant like, don't come in with your lashes. Don't come in with, you know, don't wear anything that shows off your body, anything like that. Um, And so I had a lot of issues with that going into history because I wanted to be taken seriously. um, And I wanted people to respect me in the historical field. Um, And then they did. But then I also was like, you know what? Why do I feel like I have to hide who I am or if I want to wear this dress for them to respect me? And then I was just like, screw it. <laughs> and, and then when I think you get to that point where you're like, screw it, like you're going to see my full self, my full beauty, my full uh, light. I think the world opens itself up to you. And if people aren't happy with it, screw it. There was a neighbor that my aunt had and she always said that she was the most powerful woman she knew. And I asked her why. And she said, because she has no shame. So no one can tell her any different. And people talked about her. She didn't have any shame about it. She was just herself. She was kind of, you know, the eccentric one on the block, but she had no shame. And so I think it's just a sense of freedom that comes with not caring. But like you, there are certain people who I genuinely do care what they think about me. It's just when you get older, that circle starts to shrink. I've heard that shame is the only self-taught emotion. Mm. You know, like fear and sadness, those are emotions you can't always control. They're human. Yeah. 
Shame is human too, but it's something that you stir up inside yourself. Like you have control over where, whether you want to feel it or not, which I, which I think is really interesting. Is there yeah. a moment in history or a story in history that really speaks to you? Like you read it or you learned it and you were like, damn, that I feel that <laughs> in my in my heart. It's kind of my go-to because it was my first um, one would be Cleopatra. Uh, I she was one of the first stories I ever read when I was a kid, um, just about her life. And I was always really drawn to the fact that they talked about her intelligence. That was always really key to me. They always talked about that she spoke eight languages and that she was so charming. They didn't talk about her physical appearance um, as much. And that always like interested me. Um, and I guess because when I was younger, like, my physical appearance wasn't ish, wasn't like really talked about, um, not in a bad way, just that wasn't the focus. And so Cleopatra's story of being this woman who was maligned by some people, adored by others, um, and in a weird way, kind of a messy woman really resonated with me, even as like a little kid. So I used to say when I was in like elementary school, Cleopatra was my best friend. Uh, and her name, I have her name tattooed on my arm. Uh, so I think the story of Cleopatra, the mess uh, that her life could be seen as and her strength and intelligence has always kind of resonated with me. So Cleopatra is my favorite historical story. Are there any sort of um, like false opinions or false claims about who she was that bother you? Um, I think, I think she's always, I think she's painted as like this grand seductress, um, all the time, I think. But what we have to be cognizant of in terms of history is that the stories that were written about Cleopatra were typically written by men who were Roman, who had every right or every reason not to like her. And they were typically written like hundreds of years after she died. Um, so it was basically creating this stereotype of this exotic seductress who took their upstanding gentlemen from ancient, from Rome and brought them to the sex den that was Egypt. It's not the case. Like it's just not how it happened. The girl had a flair for the dramatic. Absolutely. <laughs> but she was incredibly intelligent and actually like gave a damn about her people. Um, and so I think that kind of gets uh, pushed under the rug for the more salacious uh, sides of the story. So I think that's partially why. Um, and then, you know, that she was like a grand, like she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She definitely did it. She wasn't, you know, typically the typical attractive woman, but she was gorgeous and smart and uh, driven. So I think that's, that's what I like about her. And that's what I wish more people knew about her other than that. She was just sleeping with Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony. <laughs> Coming right up, Jane Hervey is a creative director, recording artist, and the founder of Future Front Texas, a community space and showcase series with women and LGBTQ plus creatives at the front. She also runs her own design house, group work, speaks in pivotal spaces, and performs as a vocalist and electronic producer. That's not all, and that's kind of the point. Jane Hervey knows no bounds. She's a fierce advocate for social justice, a professional hype woman, and she embodies confidence simply by way of being. 
I could go on, but with no further delay, Jane Hervey. What I see myself fighting in this and what I see myself trying to say with our programs and trying to show other people that they can also say these things too, is that no matter where you've come from, no matter how your community works, no matter what your culture is, you deserve to be treated with respect. You deserve to be able to tell your truth. You deserve to live a life that is safe, that is um, sustainable. And um, all of those things are privileges. And it's not, it's not fair to not talk about those things as privileges. Um, so yeah, it's deeply, deeply personal. Um, a lot of it is motivated by a lot of the pain I faced growing up in the small town that I grew up in a place that I really, really loved. And I still love deeply, but, um, is characterized by sexism, is characterized by colorism, is characterized by, you know, um, homophobia Mm -hmm. and, um, religious oppression. Um, and it's hard to look at something you love and say those things and know that they're true. So I think that's like why it's personal for me is that I'm trying to create a space and I've been trying to create a space with other people where we can be honest about those things, but not live in that pain. Mm-hmm. Because if you just live in that pain, it, it is, it's continually, it's a traumatizing cycle, right? So, you know, whether it's our festivals or our markets or this residency series, I'm like, if we're going to push culture forward, like this needs to feel fun. This needs to feel joyful. It needs to feel like we're doing something. Um, and it, and we need to build models that people can replicate. So like our process needs to be, it needs to be written. We need to document this time. We need to do our research. We have to hold each other accountable. Like all of those things are very deeply personal for me, but you know, I'm a producer at the end of the day. I'm an artist at the end of the day. And I think what motivates me to pursue this project and to have even started this project is that I've recognized that these things are barriers in my work. And that if they're barriers in my work as a white woman from a middle-class background, they are definitely barriers in for people who have different identities and, and sit at different intersections, whether yeah. that's racial or um, ability-wise or any number of things. And so- yeah, I think it's just like being honest about the the barriers and and wanting to create places where those don't exist at the same magnitude. First, I want I'm I'm going backwards, but mm-hmm. you said that you flexed your cellulite and I was like <laughs> I made like a mental note cuz I love I love that phrase. It's just clever, but um I also love that you don't just exude confidence. It appears to me that you embody it. And I think that there's something really, because I feel like authentic is overused now, but there's something actually very deeply authentic about that because um, so, so many exude it and it's like ego. Mm. Whereas when you embody it, it's like, it's soulful, you know? Yeah. And so if someone's struggling with that, um, how would you, how would you teach them? What, What advice would you give them? How do you embody confidence, especially when, so many in society are telling you not to. Well, I think, I think we have to remind ourselves every single day that we deserve, we deserve our amendment rights, right? Like not to get constitutional, but like we deserve the right to speak. We deserve the right to tell other people how we feel and not be 
not be um, penalized for mm-hmm. that. We deserve the right to live in our bodies and we deserve the right to exist. Like on the basis of, of us being born, we deserve the right to exist in the way that we were created. I believe that fully. And um, I don't, I think that that is a fundamental human right. Like we deserve the right to exist. And I think that when your existence in your human body is challenged by others, it can be very hard to be confident. Um, I have to remind myself that every day though, that even when people are trying to like erase, even when I feel because none of us intentionally try to erase each other in those ways or, or minimize like, we're still fighting for space. We're fighting to survive as human beings. And there is always competition within a species, even in the most well-intentioned civilized societies. And I have to remind myself of that, that like, I have to step into my power each day. I have to confidently own my mistakes. I have to own my past. I have to own my transgressions, but I also have to own my, I have to own my rights. And so, you know, as far as like flexing my cellulite goes, um, I, and I've had these conversations with my family, so I'm like comfortable sharing this, but like I was the only like heavy person in my family um, that was like born heavy. So like I, I never, I was, when I was five years old, I was like 90 pounds or something. Like I was like very, very heavy as a child and, um, that not 90 pounds. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was obese for a five-year-old. I don't okay. even know what that would be, but <laughs> I'm like, I can't even like think about that. I don't know. But, um, I had so many people telling me from a very young age that my body was wrong, that I had like, that like. I was responsible for being born that way, that I was like responsible for fixing those things. And, um, you know, when I, when I moved away from the Valley and realized that I did not have to be skinny, I just kind of started questioning every single thing about my life and realized, which I think it's scary to realize this. And we realize it every single day. Like we don't ever stop learning, but um, realizing that I was like negating some of my own experiences because I had so many people telling me that I was wrong, right? Um, about a fundamental truth, which is just like, this is how I exist. How do you discern now that you have gone through these relationships that haven't served you, that have gone so far as to be abusive, um, that have just like broken you down to the point where you had to build yourself up. Mm-hmm. How do you move forward now? Like, how do you know who's going to be good for you and who's not? Or is that a process? And are you comfortable going through that process? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that first I've had to recognize that just because I'm experiencing conflict with someone does not mean that they are evil or abusive. I cannot put them, I cannot align them with, with that pain. and that is very hard to do. Um, especially when you are actively trying to protect yourself from, from, um, when you're being vulnerable with someone and you're like actively trying to protect yourself. And, and I think that whether you're working on a business or you're putting art out into the world, um, if you're working on a project alone and then you are working with other people, you really have to be able to see the difference, right? You have to, because if not, then like any negative feedback anyone brings you, you discredit 
and you're cutting yourself off from taking the risk of actually hearing someone out and taking the risk of like seeing things more holistically because you're so scared of what could happen if you're vulnerable and you go into that space again. Um, Bell Hooks has this really awesome quote from an interview that she did with, um, oh my God, I can't blank on her name. Um, I'll probably remember like 15 minutes in, but I can add it to the next. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wrote a piece on it when I was first starting to explore this stuff in mid 2017. Um, But she, she calls it being in a brave space that like, if we can't be in a brave space and take the risk of not being safe um, with people that we're working with and the people and with people that we love, like if we can't do that, um, then we're, we are cutting ourselves off from things. Um, she also like couples that with like, she understands why people don't do that because like we have all been burned and hurt and scarred by other people. That is the truth of humanity. We do not talk about it all of the time because it's very scary to admit. It also opens us up for self-reflection and sitting down and being like, what are the things that I'm doing that are informed by pain, that are informed by trauma, um, that I'm saying that are that I'm right and that I'm correct in this or that this is just the way it has to go? Um, it opens us up to uncertainty, right? So you're reaching... Not just with boss babes, but I think in general, with just like who you are, you reach a lot of minorities and um, disadvantaged communities. How do you, as as you said, a white, white middle class? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you advocate for these people without coming off as a savior? Some people do see me that way, and probably for good reason. Um, which again, as I think the like not sitting in this binary and like recognizing that like on the basis of on the basis of me being born white into the family that I was born into, into the cultural context that I was born into, which is like I was the only white person growing up from like kindergarten to senior year that like, yes, it's a very unique perspective, but it does not excuse me. From, because you grew up on the border. Yeah. Okay. In a, Just to in, clarify. Yeah. And until I moved away, did not realize I grew up in the, one of the poorest towns in America. Like, had no idea. Right. And, um, I just think it provides me with a unique perspective, but it does not excuse me from anything at all. Like, um, I still, I still have privilege. I still have like, I still have, I still participate in systems that are performed, that are informed by racism. I still have socialization that like, and ways of thinking that are informed by my whiteness and by that context. So I think like, I have to sit in that very real space of recognizing that like, there are certain times when I need to shut up and, and sit down and that I cannot pretend one thing I'm really big on, um, one thing I'm really big on as an, as a survivor is that no one, no one is owed your trauma. Right. And I do feel like, um, it is very, very easy for, for white people who desire to be allies to co-opt other people's trauma. And I can definitely tell you that like, I have done that over the years. And so that's why I know it's very easy to do that, even if you're well-intentioned. Um, so that's like a big boundary I set now is that like, I cannot co-opt someone else's pain, someone else's trauma, someone else's like ancestral, like generational um, 
oppression. Like I cannot pretend to relate to that. I cannot pretend to be an expert on it. I cannot do any of those things. And there have been times where I did not even realize that I was putting myself in that space. Right. So I think just being honest about that is like a huge thing. Um, and, and learning from that. Yeah. So like, that's where I sit now. Um, um, I have, done extensive research on diverse and inclusive leadership practices and models. Um, when, when people talk about like anti-racism, it's not a concept. It's, it's a series of practices. It's policies, you know, it is, it is a political stance. It is a daily practice and daily learning, right? Um, so is diversity and inclusivity. Um, it is a stop. It is a lifestyle. It is, it's not like, and, and it's some, like, just like any lifestyle, you, you don't like reach a destination. You like live your life. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you have to like live it every day. Last question. And yes. it's kind of existential. I'm just warning you. <laughs> um, in regards to identity. Yeah. If I asked you, who are you? And you responded with, I am blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blank can be a few sentences. It doesn't have to be just one sentence. Yeah. I mean, I am an artist who is learning. I think it's as simple as that. Um, and I actually even feel like that word artist could be just interchangeable with, with any descriptor I put upon myself. It's like at the core of it, I am just someone who is learning, you know, um, and unsure about so many things, but like, that's, that's like who I am. Um, and I, yeah, I've like confidently stepping into that is cool. So yeah, I am learning. That's, that's what it is. I was just telling Riley after the recording stopped, like reflecting on like, like how I've been very honest in this podcast about my imperfections that like, just because we are honest about our imperfections does not justify the existence of those imperfections. It doesn't absolve us from, from having them. There's a responsibility there. So Last but not least, Shantavia Ward founded Element as a nurse practitioner who, after eight years in medicine, craved a deeper connection with inspiring people to feel good about themselves in their most natural state, beyond the needle. With incredible insight into skin health and physiology, she is deeply invested in making skincare inclusive, accessible, and affordable so that every person of every hue can put their best face forward. Her aura is infectious, and even just a few minutes of her words might actually compel you to chase a dream. So I'd love to kick things off with with my favorite question. Where were you born, and how do you identify with that place? Mm, fun. So I was born um, in Cleveland, Ohio, so Northeast Ohio, um, in a city called Cleveland. It's one of the bigger cities um, in Northeast Ohio. Um my mom had me when she was 15. Um, so I was the daughter of a 15-year-old single mom. She had a pretty decent um, immediate family, though, that was able to help her um, just navigate being a new mom at 15 and still in high school. So that whole saying about, you know, it takes a village. Um, I'm definitely the product of an immediate village that she had access to. And I think they did pretty well. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Cleveland. Um, for people who don't know, Cleveland is up uh, 
farthest north of Ohio. It sits along the lake um, on Lake Erie. Um, it's a really urban area where I grew up. I grew up in the inner city, um, just lots of lower income standards, lots of poverty, um, unemployment issues, crime. Um, I'm from the hood, you know, and I went to the public school there. And Cleveland is just a place where it's not a lot of opportunities that just easily present themselves and you 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 learn to be resourceful and you learn to make something out of nothing. Um, I, I basically feel that the way I identify with Cleveland is through those things. So it just taught me um, very early on, um, you know, as a child and as a teenager, I lived in Cleveland until I was, I think, 25-ish. So the first 25 years of my life, um, just navigating life in Cleveland with my mom. Um, it just taught me a lot of fundamental characteristics that I think currently guide my success. So you learn to be resourceful, you learn to work hard, and you learn to be determined to make a way out of the environment that you knew intrinsically you didn't want to become, um, you didn't want to become a part of in the most negative way. Because Cleveland is one of those places where they count you out before you're really given a chance. So you really got to just work really hard to make it either make it in that city or make it out of the city. Um, and I decided mm-hmm. to go ahead and, and take off and, and and take all of those things that I had learned that had shaped my character. And we moved away from Cleveland um, about 10 years ago. Um, and I haven't been back. I think that Cleveland was a very interesting place and in that it really helped to, it really helped to define um to help define me in the beginning stages of my story, but I don't think that it is where my story will end. Um, I think that it just taught me so many things about myself and how to be more expansive. Um, so yeah, Cleveland was a, a nice place to start, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the next 25 years and, and, and where they take me. Okay, so you work in a saturated industry, and I have a, I am of the mind that every industry is saturated. So I say that with a pretense. Um, but I know that I get targeted all the time. Oh like, yeah, buy this product, do this thing, and um, I love that you inspire people to take take hold of their skincare regimen because that is something that doesn't necessarily cost money. Like the act of a routine is actually just a cost of time and self-compassion, you know? And so I love that you lead with that. First, I just want to say that. And then second, I want to ask you how you found a message, a story, a niche within the industry. Um, Because you entered into an industry where, uh, you know, you can get facials all kinds of places. You can go buy skincare all kinds of places. But you, when when I step into your studio, and I recently got my friend a gift card, and and she said this too, it's a different experience. There's Uh something... um, You know, we've never experienced element skin elsewhere, you know? Uh And so I want to know how you pivoted into building something that's just totally uniquely your own. Well, thank you. I am the easy, the easy, the the quick, easy and short of this is I create, and I'll explain it too, but I created the experience that I've always wanted. And I remember many years ago when I wanted um, to open Element and I was just doing research and development and just trying to figure out what the idea was and just how to expand on that idea. I remember reading somewhere that the best businesses, um, they solve problems and they create experiences that you as a consumer, you see um, maybe a gap 
or a loophole and you and you fix that experience. Um, so I created Element um, really to <laughs> blow the top off of the spa industry because I felt like the spa industry was very pretentious, very exclusive, very expensive. Um, it became a place over the years, a place of luxury. Um, and we were not treating it as a lifestyle because of that. So because the facial at the spa would average 200 plus dollars, um, you get there and they upsell you. Now you're there for the whole day and you're getting a massage, a mani-pedi and a facial. Your price tag just went up. You're spending 500 plus, which is nice. It's beautiful. It's great to have that experience. But a lot of people don't have that leisure or that luxury for being able to do that on a regular basis. On a regular basis, meaning once a month or once every two months, maybe once every three months for some people, that's how often we need to be having our skin cared for. And whenever the spa industry puts so many constraints on that simple service, um, then they don't make it accessible for a lot of people anymore. Um, And then again, it's a luxury, not a lifestyle. So I created Element to be a lifestyle for skincare. For me, when I think about um, how it's just saturated and just how wrong the beauty industry is, I think what it does is it contributes to those issues with mental health, right? It's contributing to lower self-esteem. It contributes to you feeling like you're not enough. And everything that I do at Element is to just break down those barriers and just let people know that they are enough that you don't have to follow these beauty norms. You don't have to get this $500 treatment once a month to keep up. You know, there is no competition here. Like you, you being your own best self, it's, that's who you're in competition with. And we do everything in our power to help people get there. I do want to know though, just rewind a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like I'm always curious about this myself as a listener. Why skincare? Where, where did that start and how has it evolved for you as far as your identity goes? Like, mm. why is it so important to you? Um, I think that as far as my identity, okay. Yeah, let's have another full circle moment. <laughs> let's this, dive. You'll do this to people, Riley. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's important to me because when I think about, yeah, when I think about how I grew up and the sacrifices that my mother had to make, she didn't get an opportunity to choose self-care. She didn't get an opportunity to show up for herself in regards to her own skin. Um, she didn't have any skin issues or anything. Um, I didn't either. Um, I don't. My story is not that I had acne and I. I had this big like miracle cure for acne. That's not my story. I think it's just recognizing that my family, beyond my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, um, we never prioritized self-care. And I wanted to be like this beacon of hope to change that narrative for families and people like me. So when I think about my family, um, their lack of skincare knowledge, their lack of really just embarking on like self-care journeys that were obvious. Um, 
I said, I've got to do this for the people who don't even realize that they need this. And for the people who've been sent the wrong or taught the wrong messages about beauty. Um, so I think that's probably where, where it came from. Always just been kind of connected to beauty. But once I got into the medical aspect of it, it just kind of exposed all of the the nuances and the, the issues with what these doctors were teaching and the effects that it had on people. And then I thought about people like my mom, my 15-year-old mom or my 18-year-old aunt who never even had a facial and didn't realize the significance that that had on the future of their skin health. And I just was like, you know, we got to, we got to do something different here. Like we got to, we got to create a new space. And I created that space. So how do you define holistic wellness? So holistic wellness to me, um, personally, I think I just kind of spoke about this a little while ago. I think it's more of just having an alignment and being in tune with what your needs are. Um, Mm -hmm. I think pushing that even a step further, it's not just being in tune or being aligned, but being responsive to what those needs are. Thank you so much for tuning in. Your listening ears are the heartbeat of this podcast. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is instrumental in the growth and visibility of self-regard. You can meet me on Instagram at Riley Blanks Reed, and you can always drop some thoughts in my inbox at Riley at WokeBeauty.com. I would love to hear from you. As always, remember, you can have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Music and audio production by Angelica Ray, graphic design by Daniela Marti, and visuals by Christina Fisher.